This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Recently, young Swedish evangelist Simon Lundgren was our guest speaker here just a few weeks ago, and he spoke from John 14. Uh, where Jesus answered Philip's question about the Father. Uh, Philip said, show us the Father and it will be sufficient for us. And then how he said how Jesus replied to that was, Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. And we know that Jesus wasn't actually literally saying that he was the Father, but he was one on purpose, uh, he was one in nature, he was one in character, he was one in the eternal Godhead with the Father. Now, nothing our young evangelist said was wrong in any of that, and we immediately knew what he was getting at, uh, because uh, people wonder as well, if we want to know what the Father's like, and Jesus said, well, look at me, see me, you've seen the Father. However, in my mind, that threw up a question that many non-believers and not a few believers struggle with. Namely, this is the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament really the same God. When non-believers, particularly atheists or agnostics or even uninformed believers, whenever they bring up the subject of a vengeful, judgmental, wrathful God in the Old Testament, they say, well... You say that Jesus in the New Testament's God, but he's kind, compassionate, benevolent, generous, merciful. So is there two gods? Is there the God of the Old Testament? And is this God of the New Testament, are they the same? Or are they two different, entirely different gods? Well, of course, the answer naturally is no, they are one in the same God. There is only one God. But this is the reason why many Christians don't really talk much about the Old Testament and why many preachers rarely ever preach from it. Because when you come to the passages where God is pouring out his wrath and he's pouring out his judgment upon nations and upon individuals and he's wiping them out, then they struggle with that. Because when you come into the New Testament and you see Jesus is benevolent and kind and merciful and compassionate and forgiving, then they struggle with this idea, well, how could that be? Uh, and so therefore, oftentimes they leave the Old Testament out altogether and say, well, we like the Jesus part, but we're not so sure about, oh, the God of wrath of the Old Testament. And so that's really what I want to deal with a little bit tonight, because actually there is no dichotomy here. There's no contradiction at all, because the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Well, let me explain. First 11 chapters of the Old Testament is basically the history, the early history of, of mankind, uh, which began, of course, then we see that from the fall, basically, to the flood, and then just a little bit beyond that with the Tower of Babel and the dispersion of the, the people around the world. And chapter 12, then, it begins with a man, Abraham. And from Abraham comes the Hebrew nation. And from the Hebrew nation, eventually, would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
And then we know that in between all of those periods, there was the patriarchs, there were the prophets, there were other nations. And, uh, and so there was a long period of time when Israel, the nation of Israel, was God's showcase to other nations, if we could put it that way. That God raised them up to show the other nations, this is what will happen if you follow me, if you obey my instructions, because I know what's better for you. And if you do that, then you'll be abundantly blessed. But if you don't do this, then you're going to be in trouble. And so the Israel as a nation was raised up to showcase the very nature of God. And he would demonstrate his love and his blessing through them, and they would have the tremendous privilege of being the nation that God would manifest himself to. In fact, they were the only nation on earth that God ever made a covenant with. All the other nations were godless, were wicked, were rebellious. Uh, they were unbelieving. And Israel was to be their light. Israel was to reflect the goodness of God to them. But time and time and time again, they failed to do that as a people. And God had to chastise them, his own people, because of that. Uh, and from time to time, they would actually begin to worship other gods. And uh, So that's why God had to even judge his own people and from time to time even punish them. And of course, he had to punish and he had to rebuke and he had to judge other nations also. And if he hadn't have done that, then the world would have ended up again like it was before Noah, where the world was so wicked and so abominable that God decided to wipe them all out. And we know then that from time to time things were bad, when you particularly see the classic example of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God said, I've had enough of it. I'm going to destroy them completely. The Canaanites were also a wicked, evil people. They practiced wickedness at a tremendous scale. It was the Canaanites who offered their firstborn children up to the god Moloch. And they literally offered their children up to the god to be burned alive. To be burned alive. Can you imagine any parent standing watching their child being burned alive to an idol. And that's how bad it was. Wicked beyond belief. And so, yes, God had to judge them. And he had to punish these nations. And even when his own people get influenced by that and they started to enter into that, he obviously he had to punish and judge them. The Canaanites had been in the land for 400 years. For centuries, they practiced this wickedness and this vile religion that they had. And so in that time, they had plenty of time to repent, plenty of time to seek the one true God, to turn from their evil practices, but they continually rejected the one true God, and they continually kept on in these evil practices. And so God, from time to time, then would give the order. By the way, isn't it interesting that Israel was 400 years in Egypt? And whenever they were released after 400 years in Egypt, during that 400 years, that's when the Canaanites was practicing all this evil in the very land that God had promised to Abraham for the Israelites. 
and God used the Israelites when they came out of Egypt to go to Cana, uh, apart from to, to take the land that had been promised them, but to be God's rod of judgment against the Canaanites. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, Verse 16, But of the cities of these peoples which the Lord your God gives you as inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods, and you sin against your God." And so God didn't want them to be contaminated and to enter into these vile practices. God wanted a pure people, a holy people, a righteous people, a good people. And he knew that if, as long as Israel would not deal with the issue when they got to the land, and unfortunately didn't fully deal with it, as long as that would happen, then the chances were that they too would become influenced by this vile worship and actually... They actually did. In Exodus uh, uh, 23, verse 33, the last verse, They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And then Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9. Verses 4 to 6. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> and you had to rebuke them many, on many occasions. <coughs> And so God waited for 400 years, according to Genesis 15, 16, until the Canaanites' cup of iniquity was full. Until God got to the place where he said, enough is enough. And suddenly then we see the great exodus from Egypt all the way across to the promised land where the Canaanites were, and then God would use the Israelites as a rod of judgment against them. <coughs> If we think that God is cruel, if we think that God somehow enjoys wiping out people, Ezekiel 33 and 11 says, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they would repent, that they would turn from their evil. That's what God really wants. And God is long-suffering. He's of tender mercies. He's compassionate. But he'll only go so far. There'll come a time when God say, enough is enough, no more. The story of, of Jericho and how that uh, Joshua was instructed to go into Jericho and to, and to take the land and how that 
as he went into Jericho and got the command to do this uh, in Joshua chapter 1. When you come into chapter 2, you remember how he sent out the, the spies, the 12 spies, and they went to spy out the land. But whenever they got to spy out the land, they met this, this harlot, this prostitute, Rahab. And it's interesting because if you read in chapter 6, which we'll have a little look at in a moment or two, this city was the first city they were to take in the promised land. And it was devoted for destruction. So everything was to be wiped out, including the very cattle and the donkeys and the sheep. Everything was to go. But in this city, which was a wicked, evil city, there was this one woman, Rahab, and you remember how she, she spared these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, and how that she saved them because the people were looking for them. They knew they were spies in the land. They wanted to kill them. And so she hid them in a roof space and, and actually told a big porgy, didn't she? She said, they're gone. They're way that way. And they chased after that way. No one fell right. They're up in a roof space. And, uh, but it's interesting what she said. Verse 8 of Joshua 2. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in any one of us because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and of the earth beneath. Now, isn't this fascinating? These people knew for 40 years about the Israelites. And they knew the Israelites was coming. And they knew they were getting ever closer. And they had been mapping them and watching them and spying on them and hearing the stories about the Amorites and how they destroyed them. And they knew they were next in the firing line. But did they repent? No. <laughs> in fact, there was only one in the whole city. Rahab the harlot. She was the only one that by her action had truly repented by hiding the two spies, by believing that God was coming through the Israelites and was going to destroy the city. And she believed that with all of her heart and said, please spare me, save me. And they did save her, didn't they? In fact, when the city fell in Joshua 6, she and her family were the only ones that were saved out of the whole city because they were the only ones that truly repented. They were the only ones that truly, even though they knew these people were coming to destroy them, you'd think the whole city would have been in sackcloth and ashes and repenting on their knees before a holy God, but they weren't, except this one woman and her family. And so God is merciful, and, and, he, would have, and he did show mercy to them. Sadly, Israel was reluctant very often to fully implement God's commands and ended up compromising and practicing the very things that God hated and despised. In 1 Samuel 15, just as an example, much later on, of course, 1 Samuel 15, Prophet Samuel tells King Saul 
I want you to destroy the, the Amalekites. They're a wicked people. And they've got away with this far too long. So I want you to go in and I want you to destroy them. Everything. Leave nothing. And so he went in and almost did what the prophet said. But he spared King Agag. He spared him. He shouldn't have spared him. And some of the people then, they spared some of the livestock. Shouldn't have done that. And so Samuel, being the prophet, knew this in his spirit. He comes to Saul and basically says, did you, did you do what I asked you to do? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, we did that. He says, well, I, I, what's this bleating I'm hearing of the sheep in my ears? <laughs> oh, he says, well, that was the people. They, they saved some of them. But... But what about King Agag? Did you not kill him? No, I spared him. And Samuel was angry. He took a sword and he cut him in pieces. That was judgment for you, wasn't it? He cut him in pieces. Now some of those Amalekites escaped. Because way, way, way later on, when you're reading the book of Esther, how that Haman... The Agagite, a relative of King Agag, who had been spared, he wanted to destroy every man, woman, and child that was Jewish in all the empire of Persia, every single... He wanted mass extermination. You see why God wanted these people wiped out? Because they wanted to destroy God's people either through their sinful lifestyle or through killing them in mass extermination because they were the people, because Satan knew this, they were the people that God would bring the Messiah through. And so God was very strict and God's very just and he had just reasons for doing this. But God in the Old Testament, even though he's a God of justice and a God of judgment, but he's a God of mercy and grace. There's lots of mercy and grace in the Old Testament if you look for it. I mean, one of the greatest examples, of course, is, is, is Hosea. God tells Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute. Knowing full well that even though she would be married to him, a godly, righteous man, that she would go out and sell herself to other men. And God says, well, marry her even though I know she'll do this again and again and again, but marry her, because this was a sign to the nation, because this is what the nation of Israel was doing with God. <laughs> they were selling themselves to other gods and other nations. And he was married to them. Now, God's not advocating that somebody go out and do that today, but that was a sign to the whole nation. And God forgave them again and again, just the way Hosea had to keep keeping her back again and again and again. He forgave. <coughs> so God is a merciful God. You read the story, the history of Israel, you'll see that God forgave them again and again and again and again and again. Before the flood, the wicked world was so wicked and evil that God decided to wipe everyone off the face of the earth. It was so corrupt. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Peter says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So for years and years and years, 
Noah preached righteousness to a wicked nation, to a wicked people, to a wicked world. But they wouldn't listen. They rejected. They didn't want to know. And so after a long period of time, God was long-suffering, but there came a point where God says, no, that's it. I am going to destroy the whole world. And the only person he could save was Noah, the preacher of righteousness. And Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives, eight and all, were saved and spared in the ark of the Lord. So in the midst of judgment, God is a merciful God. And that antediluvian world had ample opportunity to turn, but they didn't. Remember Moses, how that we read in the study of Moses, how that at least on two occasions, God says, I'm going to destroy them all. <laughs> I'm finished with them. And I'm going to raise you up. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you. The way I did with Abraham, but they failed so many times. I'm done with them. I'm going to raise you up. You'll be the next Abraham. And Moses says, no, God, don't do that. Be merciful to them. And twice God was merciful to them and relented and didn't do that because Moses interceded for them. So God's merciful. We mentioned Jonah this morning. <laughs> Go and preach to the Ninevites. And he hated the Ninevites. They were, they were God's people's enemy. They were the, they were the, they were the ones that, that hated them the most. They were the ones that was the cruelest and the most wicked to the Israelites at that time. And they were wicked and cruel. And they were powerful. And God said to Jonah, go and preach to them. And Moses said, I don't want to because I know they'll repent. If I preach to them, they'll repent. And you'll spare them. And I don't want them spared. And he ran off, didn't he? But God brought him back. And they did repent. Just as Jonah feared they would. And he wasn't happy about it. But God wanted them to repent because he wanted to spare them. And he spared them for a hundred years. A hundred years they were spared until they did the same thing all over again. So God is merciful. Every verse in Psalm 136 ends with the words, the mercy of God endures forever. God often delayed his judgment or suspended it if he saw signs of repentance and often canceled it altogether if there was a change of attitude and a change of heart, whether that was a nation like the Ninevites or whether that was an individual, God would spare them. So let's not just pick a few verses out of the Old Testament and make God out to be some kind of malevolent monster who delighted in wiping out people and nations. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Remember that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus never had a problem with his father. He never had a problem with his father's justice. He never had a problem with his father's judgments. And he says, I and the father are one. Now let's just look for a few moments in the New Testament. Because here you see the preponderance of grace and mercy. John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so there is a, a highlighting, an emphasis of grace and mercy that you see immediately coming into the New Testament through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.17, 
Paul speaks about the abundance of grace. In Ephesians 1 and 7, he speaks about the riches of God's grace. And for three years plus, Jesus went about the length and breadth of the land, demonstrating the grace and the mercy and the benevolence and the love and the goodness of God. He poured it out. Touched so many lives. So many miraculous things happened. So many wonderful words he spoke. He was the very epitome, the embodiment of the grace and mercy of God. For everyone to see. You see it with the woman that was taken in adultery, where he wrote in the psalm. You see it with Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector who was hiding up that tree. You see it in the parable of the prodigal son. You see it in the restoration of Peter. You see it with the woman at the well of Samaria. You see it with that woman, that woman of ill repute, who sat at the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her tears and with the hairs of her head. Washed her feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You see it with the Samaritan woman at the well. You see it in the healing of the ear of Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter chopped his ear off and Jesus healed it. The one who had come to arrest him to take him to his execution. Over and over and over again we see in Christ, we see this God being gracious and merciful and benevolent and kind and compassionate. But there, that's the problem that arises in people's minds. Because they say, that doesn't look like the God of the Old Testament. <laughs> that doesn't look like the appearance of the one in the Old Testament who looks to be vengeful and judgmental and merciless. But wait a minute. Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So there's nothing wrong in the thinking of Jesus. The wrong thinking is us. <laughs> It's us who thinks wrong about these things. It's us who, who takes a few incidents in the Old Testament and we magnify that and almost feel, well, God's not showing grace or mercy. But when you read right through the Old Testament, you see the grace and mercy. The river of grace and mercy flows freely all the way through the Old Testament right into the New Testament. But when Jesus is magnified, it's amplified. You can see it continually for three and a half years. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. Yes, it's true that Jesus, for that time on earth, he exemplified the love and mercy of grace of the loving Father in heaven, but he had those flashes of anger, didn't he? There, were, there was those moments of anger. Do you remember when he went into the temple and he made a whip of cords and he kicked over the tables of the money changers and you said that you have made my Father's house a den of thieves? And he kicked them out and beat them with a whip. Hmm. That sounds judgmental, doesn't it? That's real anger. That's God being angry with what was happening in his house. Those scribes and Pharisees, look at the run-ins with them. Huh. He says, you're white at sepulchres. Bright and shiny on the outside, but inside full of dead men's bones. You're rotten on the inside. <laughs> I should tell the religious leaders, the highest religious leaders, you're rotten to the very core. <laughs> doesn't sound like gentle Jesus making manager, it doesn't. Go tell that fox, Herod. <laughs> you know, you talk about the fox, Herod, you're thinking, we, we would think a fox as someone's crafty and sly. But the fox was an unclean animal. 
go tell an unclean fox. <laughs> oh. look, at, look at this here in Luke chapter 13, just for a moment. Verse 1 of chapter 13 of Luke. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered such things? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. <laughs> Jesus didn't spare anybody. When, when, when he had to rebuke, I tell you, he rebuked. Are those 18 in whom the tower of, in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Jesus, meek and mild, could speak very strongly and could pronounce judgments when he needed to and when he wanted to. In Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, in verse 4 of Acts 13, and so being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And when they went through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew by the name of Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, fell with the Holy Spirit. So he didn't do this in the flesh. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O fool of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Paul wasn't just acting out of natural annoyance and anger. He wasn't just in the flesh at that moment. He was in the Spirit. He was being led by the Holy Spirit, and he pronounced a judgment upon that man. Remember Paul one time said to the Corinthian church about an individual who was doing abominable things that he shouldn't be doing? Paul says, hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that they might be saved hand them over to Satan. That sounds judgmental, doesn't it? And so there's plenty of love and grace and mercy in the New Testament, but boy, there's some judgment in it too. It's because it's the same God. And the same God is a judge, but the same God is a merciful God at the same time. He's a just God. 
In Acts 5, you see that incredible moment. There was such an increase in the church at that time. Thousands were being, literally thousands were being saved. And Barnabas, he had some land and he sold it and laid it at the apostles' feet. And, and many others did that. There's great need within the young burgeoning church. So they did that. And Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, they saw this happening and they just said, well, we'll do this too, only we'll keep back part of the price. We'll pretend that we're giving everything. But actually we're not, but we'll pretend we are. And so Peter says to Ananias, he said, uh, you have lied to the Holy Ghost. He says, while you had that land, it was yours to do with what you want. Even when you sold it, you still could do with it what you want. You could have kept back part of the price and give so much and said to us, listen, I, I can't give all of that. I'm keeping some of it. But, but you didn't. You pretended you were giving your all and you weren't. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You know what happened? He just dropped down dead at his feet. <laughs> could you imagine? Could you imagine if that came into the church today? <laughs> It says great fear fell upon the whole church. I bet it did. Three hours later, his wife came in. He says, tell me, did you send the land for such and such? Do you sell it for such and such? Yes, for such and such. He says, for those that carried out your husband, he says, listen, you can hear their feet at the door. They're going to carry you out. And she dropped down dead too. And great fear came upon the whole church. Sounds a bit, sounds a bit harsh, that, doesn't it? I mean, the only, the only, it was only a wee white lie. No, it wasn't. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And this was a crucial time, and the church was just growing, and, just, and, and God wasn't going to have any of the lies in his church. He wasn't going to have it. There were no fraud and lies in his church, and he dealt with it immediately. First Peter 4, 17 and 18. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, when, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? So let's get a balance in all of this. God is a just God. He's a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a merciful God. He's a benevolent God. He's a kind God. But he draws lines. And there comes a time, whether it's a nation or an individual, there comes a time when they're ripe for judgment. There comes a time. Some of the scariest verses in the Scripture... This is Matthew's chapter 24 and chapter 25, and we don't have time to read all of them, obviously, and we won't. But whenever you read those scriptures, <laughs> well, look at chapter, let me read chapter 25, verse 31, from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from the other as a shepherd divides sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from you for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. 
Then the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And he also said to those on his left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer and say, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. Wow. Hmm. Sobering, isn't it? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, speaking these words. See, sometimes even as believers, we, we skip over this part because we still want to show the mercy and the love and the compassion of God that, that we skip over that. But you've got to remember, he's a just God. He's a just God. And justice has to be served. He sets his mercy over against that. For those who repent and turn to him, then he's ever so merciful and kind and generous. The whole book of Revelation, you'll see a whole series of judgments that falls upon the earth. Hmm? Three series of seven. Trumpet judgments, seal judgments, bowl judgments. And every one gets more severe than the other to the point where men are crying out. In Matthew, it says that men's heart will fail them for fear of the things that are coming on the earth. And Revelation is a book about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't ever call it the book of Revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's revelations in it, but they're all about him. It's showing who he really is. And it starts off in the seven churches and Jesus standing in the midst of the seven churches. And he looks as if he's in fire. And his eyes are like eyes of fire looking into the churches. And he rebukes five out of the seven churches. He rebukes five out of seven. Only two escape his rebuke. It's the same God. It's the same God. It's not a different God. We're almost finished. Revelation chapter 20. Verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades, or death and hell, were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Whew. That's scary, isn't it? Do you know who the judge is on that day? Jesus. He's the judge. He came as a lamb. He's coming back as a lion. He's the judge. John 5.22, the father has committed all judgment onto his son. <laughs> Nobody did better to judge than Jesus, the one who was crucified for us and by us. So he's going to be the judge. And he will judge all men fairly, righteously, and truly, because only he can do that. We can't judge accurately or fairly or rightly most of the time because of our humanity, but he can, and he will. And so let's get a balance here. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the God of the Old Testament. There's judgment and mercy in the Old Testament. There's judgment and mercy in the New Testament because it's the same God. And he's a righteous judge, but he's a merciful God too. And so we need the balance in those two things to keep us right, to keep us thinking right. Because one day all of us will face the righteous judge. For the believer, it will not be the great white throne of judgment we just read. It'll be the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. But even that... <laughs> Some will be haywood and stubble that get burned up and will not get any reward for some of the things we have done, but others will be precious stones and jewels and silver and gold, which will be rewarded. And so, here we are. We serve a righteous God. We serve a judging God, but we serve a merciful and a great God. And thank God for his mercy in our lives tonight. Amen. <laughs> Because he could have judged us and sent us to hell. <laughs> and we wouldn't, have had a, we wouldn't have had a word to argue about it. We deserved it. But in his mercy, he saved us. In his grace, he came and he won us to himself. And he was so patient with us, wasn't he? Thank God for that. Lord, we thank you that you are truly a good God. Truly a righteous God. Truly a merciful God. And Lord, we sit here tonight as the example of your mercy and goodness. And we thank you that Jesus, your son, took our judgment, took the chastisements of our sins upon him, and with his stripes, we are saved and healed. So we thank you for that tonight. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came to take the full stroke of judgment that was deserving of us, but you took it upon yourself on the cross, and you let us go free. And so we thank you tonight for your graciousness and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.